in just a second, I'm going to invite Pastor Brian up and, and uh, let him preach to us and hear the word from him. Uh, but by way of introduction, he is no stranger to adversity. He is a diehard Wolverine fan living in Lansing, which has uniquely qualified him for leadership. Uh, perhaps more importantly, he also served as a pastor of a church for 15 years uh, where God blessed and they saw him do amazing things. He has a heart to bless our entire region with his pastoral leadership. Uh, I'm thankful that he has been called as our regional minister and excited to be able to introduce him to you. So Brian, would you just join, join me up here? And let me pray for you as you prepare to bring the word. Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of hearing your word. I ask for your blessing, for clarity, for, for Pastor Brian as he preaches. That you'd bless him with your spirit that he would speak to our church exactly what we need to hear today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, guys. It is good to be with you, and uh, I'll just tell you, it was a a, a, a treat for me to be able to uh, worship alongside you. Um, uh, thankful for uh, Chris's leadership with the um, praise team, and to be able to sing Christ exalting songs. You know, I uh, uh, there's a trend I think in our culture today that wants us to sing more and more, uh, almost as if Jesus is my boyfriend. And uh, what we need is songs that lift high the majesty uh, of Jesus Christ. And so to be able to do that with you has been a joy. Thank you for that. Uh, as your pastor said, uh, my name is Brian Johnson, and I started in this role on March 1. I didn't even know the copier code in the office before COVID hit. And the whole world has been in one big pivot since then. And, uh, but, I'm, but I'm grateful. Uh, one of the things that, that God has been impressing upon me, not just in terms of my leadership in this moment, but just in general, is that uh, if we really lean into and believe in the sovereignty of God, then we have to believe that God has appointed us for this moment in time. So rather than run, hide, we need to say, God, in your sovereignty, if you've called me here for this moment in time, what is it you are asking of me? What is it that you are asking of your church so that she can be the radiant bride that you shed your blood for her to be all along? And so I'm excited to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, I really have felt a conviction from the Lord um, that over the course of this year, that really the, the emphasis, okay, God, where, where are you wanting uh, our churches to be moving? What is, what is the focus? What's the emphasis? And I really believe that it's around this idea of transformation, that what this world desperately needs to see is the transformative power of the gospel at work in and through the church. And so, uh, today, uh, I want to just begin by asking a question. You know how some questions uh, are, are, are kind of like a, a soft end into a conversation, or, or, and some are like um, a car wreck. It's like, bang, all of a sudden, whoa, okay, we're going there. That's where we're going today. So here's my question. Why don't more Christians change? Why don't we see more change? and people who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, why is there so few people who are changing? Why is there so little change that's happening 
in the church. Now, when you hear me talk about the church, I want you to be clear. I'm speaking about the church in broad generalizations here in America. I can't tell you what's happening in the church in Ethiopia. I can't tell you what's happening in the church in Nairobi. I'm speaking about the church in America today. Why is it we don't see change? Why is it that in the average church, someone who is progressively being sanctified and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, why are they unique? Why is that abnormal? And, and, and we see this, don't we? There are, there are a handful of people in every church that whether they have a board position or not, they have influence and people look to them. It's like, oh, so-and-so is talking. Oh, Oh, look at him, you know. And, and, and there's certain, like, sins you don't want to commit if you're around him or if you're around her because they're so much more like Jesus than you. But why are there so few of them? Why is it, and this is kind of what I'm observing in the church today, why is the general tr- trend that if somebody has um, a, 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 a salvific moment, that in that first year or two, Some of the more heinous, uh, in our eyes, clear, evident areas of sin. Why is it that those begin to change? They begin to shed some of those things. But why is it that after maybe a year or two, for the average Christian, what you see is what you're going to get? In other words, why, why do we see plateau? And we see it, don't we? We see it all around us. That Maybe there are people who've been in this church 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you look back, and they are essentially the same person. They're not growing. They're not changing. They're not being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And, and we, we even you know, have language that supports this. We, we will say things like, well, that's just the way I am. I was born a worry wart, I am a worry wart, and I'm going to die a worry wart. Well, you know, Jim, he just, you know, he has anger issues. He just, he just has anger issues. That's just who he is. And I'm telling you, it impugns the transformative power of Jesus Christ when we talk that way. Also embedded in that is, is this phenomenon in American Christianity This is a wild thing. Tell me if you've experienced this. If you're out and about and you meet somebody who's a follower of Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed that one of the first maybe two or three questions that we will ask them, if it's not the first one, is this. How long have you been a Christian? Have you noticed? Why do we do this? Because we have this thing in our mind that if somebody says, well, I've been a Christian for like 30 years, what do we immediately think? Oh. They must really know Jesus. But if we hear somebody say, well, I've been a Christian for a couple years, don't we immediately think, oh, you've got a long way to go. This idea, there's, there's an assumption, and it's a wrong one. There is an assumption that time on the job equals transformation. I grew up um, in, in, in an American Baptist church in Illinois, 
and there. We had this thing, I, I don't know if you guys had it or experienced it here or other places, that if you had at or near perfect attendance in Sunday school, you earned a Sunday school pen. And anybody have that experience at all? So, so you would, and in my family growing up, you had to be near dead to miss church. Okay, so you got, I mean, like, unless there was physical evidence, you were going to church. Um, and so I ended up, you know, with, with, with some Sunday school pins, but there were others in my church. I kid you not, they had more metal on the lapel of their jacket than the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And there was, whoa, look at all that. And we assume time on the job somehow equals transformation. Now, I can say this to you because I'm going to leave later on today. <laughs> More often than not, when somebody says, oh, I've been a Christian for 30 years, what they are really saying is I have been a year one Christian for 30 times in a row. I'm not really transforming. I'm not really becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. What you saw 25, 28 years ago, you're seeing more of that. The only difference may be I have more head knowledge than I did before, but it's not translating into conformity to Jesus Christ. My head may be getting bigger, but that's it. And so I continue to be haunted by this question. Why don't we see more change? And I think the text that we're going to look at today gives us a little glimpse as to why. If you, if you have your Bible with you, would you pull it out? And would you open up to the Gospel of John? Uh, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, man, I tell you what, on behalf of Pastor Phil and everybody else, we, they are excited that you are here. And, and don't, don't hesitate to use a table of contents. There's a Bible app that you could download, and you could tap, 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 and find out where the book of John is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the stories uh, of Jesus. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 2. And we're going to see the first miracle uh, that is recorded uh, of Jesus uh, in Cana in Galilee. And I think embedded in this story, and I hope to share this, uh, this story with you maybe in, in a fresh way that might give you uh, some insight into why it is that we don't see change inside of us. So I'm going to read, and if you just kind of follow along, and I'll share some thoughts along the way. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, that stands out to me for a reason. Because there is this, this assumption that if I'm really being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, if I'm becoming more and more like Jesus, then people are not going to want to be around me. I'm going to be boring. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, too righteous for anyone else to be around me. But here's the cool thing. When you, read, when you read the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, maybe you haven't done it for a long time, I'd invite you to go back fresh and new. Here's what you'll find. People who were far from Jesus wanted to be around Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to be around him or her. And so if you become more and more like Jesus, if you allow the, the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit to do in you all that Christ's blood purchased on the cross, I'm telling you, you, won't, you you'll be someone that unchurched people uh, can be drawn to 
There, so Jesus is invited to a wedding. This wedding uh, is taking place in Cana in Galilee. And we read there in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, they have no more wine. Now, if you lived in biblical times when this was being written, if you would have heard them say, they have no more wine, there would have been a collective gasp that would have filled this air, this, this entire room. Because in that day and in that time, in that culture, it was a culture that was known as an honor-shame culture, which is different than ours. In an honor-shame culture, you are someone who's being honored or shamed, and there's really not much middle ground. And when you are over here in the shame section, it is virtually impossible to get out of it. People would look to avoid you. They would talk about you. And, 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 and is there any environment that you can think of where there is more pressure because you know people are going to be talking about you, then a wedding. When I had the opportunity to get married to my wife, uh, I learned some things during the wedding about marriage. Men, anybody understand where I'm going with this today? You learned some things. See, um, because what I realized is for the bride and the mother of the bride, there is tremendous pressure. You want this thing to go well, because if it doesn't, you know everybody's going to be talking about it. Interestingly, in this culture, if you were to have run out of wine, not only would you be shamed, but I read uh, in a couple of places, you could actually be sued in that culture. You thought we'd live in a litigious culture. Now, imagine back then, you ran out of wine. I'm taking you to court. So you've got all this pressure for a wedding to go just right. In, in, in my, my own wedding, men, I would invite you to think back to your own experience. If you have been graced by God to have uh, been uh, married and, and go through a wedding ceremony, I learned some things. Maybe you did as well. See, I went into this thing thinking it was her and I, and we were going to plan this whole thing together. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> Any, 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 any men here, can you understand? Uh, see, um, I had some ideas about what we should do and how we should do it. For example, um, I thought when it came time for the uh, wedding reception, what better um, catering could there possibly be for us than if we were to get Kentucky Fried Chicken? I mean, can you think of a better way to bless this union than with the colonel's original recipe? And I shared this with her, and she looked at me, and I kid you not, she looked at me in a way where I could process what was going on behind her eyes, and I really think she was reevaluating this entire possible union. Anybody care to guess how much Kentucky Fried Chicken was at that reception dinner. That much. So I, I moved on from there. I moved on. I, I, I saw the chicken was not going to be an option, so I moved to dessert. And, and people spend all this money on these cakes. And they're only getting more and more ornate today. Well, I, I said, well, honey, okay, so if I'm not going to get Kentucky Fried Chicken, can we talk about the cake? I'd like to have a carrot cake for our 
wedding cake. Now, it's important that I clarify for you what I mean when I say a carrot cake, because some of you may have a wrong idea of what a carrot cake looks like. First and foremost, a carrot cake that makes Jesus smile does not have raisins in it, because raisins do not make Jesus smile. It's the devil's fruit. I'm convinced that you can make an argument in the Garden of Eden, you had grapes, the fall happens, and we end up with raisins, okay? So no raisins in this cake of mine. Now, I want to take it a step further. Because we're taking raisins out, we now have room for something else. You know what we have room for? Nuts. Nuts belong in carrot cake, they belong in cookies, they belong in brownies, they belong in fudge. And all the righteous people of God said, amen. Now, there's only one reason anybody really has carrot cake, the frosting. And if you are someone who thinks that you should open up a jar of like a vanilla or buttercream frosting and put it over the top of this cake, I'd like to see you afterwards with your pastor because we're going to have some anointing oil to get whatever is in you out of you because the godly people don't do that. The only reason you eat carrot cake is for cream cheese frosting. And so when I'm explaining to my wife-to-be what I want in describing this cake, when I say I want cream cheese frosting, you need to understand what I mean. I want there to be a layer of cream cheese frosting so high I could drop a toddler in there and they're up to their waist. That's what I mean when I say I want cream cheese frosting. Anybody care to guess how much of that was at my wedding? None. Here's what I learned. By virtue of marrying her, I was given the opportunity to wear what she told me to wear, to stand where she told me to stand, and to say what she told me to say. Failure to execute on any of those fronts was reason for reevaluating this potential union. Why? Tremendous pressure for this thing to go right. So much more in this day and time. And now we find out when there's this pressure for it to go right in a culture of honor and potential great shame, they have run out of wine. So Jesus' mother says they have no more wine. Verse 4, here's Jesus' response. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, on the surface, it almost sounds like Jesus is talking back to his mama. But clearly, he's not. So what is he, what, what is he getting at? I think, I think, in a way, what he's trying to say is, you know, mom, mom, I'm here for more than just hocus pocus abracadabra. I'm not just here to perform these wow things and and to get everybody going, ooh, look at him. Look what he can do. Look what he can do. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And so any of the miracles that we read about in the, in the Gospels and, in, and even the miracles that we see happening in and through the book of Acts, the purpose of them was greater than the miracle itself. The purpose was to substantiate that Jesus Christ really can do what he said he can do when he says he can take a dead, lifeless soul and bring it back to life. That is the greatest possible miracle that can be performed. 
I mean, imagine if you or I were to go to a cemetery and to stand there and to speak at those graves and say, get up, get up. It's not going to work. You don't have that power. And, and the people in those graves, what is the likelihood that they have the power to say, okay, I'm going to get up now. I'm waking up now. I'm coming to life now. The people in the grave and those standing there talking to the ones in the grave have this thing in common. They're powerless. Only Jesus has the power to take that which is dead and raise it to life. And so the miracles we see Jesus perform are done with the ultimate aim that those who would see and witness the miracles of Jesus Christ would realize that he has the power to do this greatest of miracles, which is to take a dead soul and bring it back to life again, if he's doing this and this and this and this. And then Jesus is just saying, Mom, Mom, here, here's the ultimate. Here's where I'm really focused on right here. Now, if you are a mom, I think the next verse is one of the funniest verses in the entire Bible. So, so he just heard, she just heard him say this. And, and verse five, Mary, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Proof that even the son of God still does what Mamo says. Even the son of God was still under Mama's thumb. Do whatever he tells you. And then we get to verse Six nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Don't rush past that. When the Bible gives us information, the Bible gives us information for a reason so that you can have a clearer picture of what's going on. When, when God wrote this book, he didn't write the book the way you and I write term papers. You know, it's got to be a certain uh, number of words or a certain length. And so if you have to write a 15-page term paper, what's, what's the temptation? Well, let's, you know, a four-inch uh, margin on this thing and a size 16 font, we'll triple space this bad boy and we'll be done in no time. Or you go, oh, oh man, I, I, I've only got 10 pages and I need 14. And we start, you know, putting filler words in there so we can make this thing go. There are no filler words in this book. Do you realize that? There's not one. So every detail that's given here is for our benefit. So use your imagination and, and take into consideration what's going on. We are told there are six stone water jars, okay? The kind that are used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. And each one's holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Imagine how big just one of these is. It's stone, okay? And it holds 20 to 30 gallons. And there are six of them. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. To which, if I'm one of the servants, I'm going, you want me to what? Because in all likelihood, they had filled them up earlier that day once so that they could be used for the ceremonial foot washing. And now they just heard Jesus say, we want you to go and fill these things up with water again. And if I am one of those servants, I'm thinking, this does not make sense to me. And we just landed on something. 
One of the primary reasons that we find ourselves seeing so little transformation in our churches today is because we are under the illusion that God has to somehow make sense to me before I choose whether or not to be obedient to it. It's, well, God, that doesn't make sense. God, I don't understand. Of course you don't. You don't have the mind of God. His, 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 his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end it leads where? Destruction. So he thinks better than I think, higher than I think, and left to my own thinking, I will lead myself by my own thinking to a place of destruction. So then why would we ever be so foolish to go, well, God, I, I, you want me to do it? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if I'm going to do that. If, if, if you're determination on whether or not you are going to be obedient to God is whether or not what he is asking you to do makes sense to you or not. At the end of the day, you are not under the lordship of God. You're under the lordship of your own depraved mind. That's a scary thought to be. This doesn't make sense. I don't know if I'm going to do it. And in American Christianity, do you know we've actually coined a phrase that has allowed us to get out of being obedient to Jesus Christ when it either doesn't make sense to us or it may cost us more than we want to give. We have coined a phrase, and you may have used it even recently. It goes a little something like this. I'll pray about that. I'll pray about that. I'll pray about that has become, not exclusively, okay, I don't don't want to besmirch something that can be an authentic piece of trying to submit ourselves before God, but but, uh, I'll pray about that has become a phrase that we use when we go, I don't understand this, and or it might cost me more than I want to give in the moment, so I'm going to use the language of I'm going to pray about it to decide whether or not I'm going to be obedient to God or not. I'm going to use it to decide whether or not I say yes, Lord, or no, Lord, which pause. How can you put those two words together? No, Lord. Don't they contradict each other? How can you say no and Lord? You can't. And so here's this person going, I I, I did this earlier. This didn't make sense. I'm tired. And you want me to do this again? Be careful not to put your 21st century perspective and overlay that on what's happening right here. Because we hear this and we go, oh, that doesn't make sense, Jesus, but fine. Go get the garden hose, bring in the fire truck, we'll fill these things up in 20, 30 minutes, and we'll go on with the show. This is not the culture that they lived in. To say, let's fill these things up again, meant, okay, guys, grab the buckets. Each bucket could hold one, maybe two gallons. Grab a couple of those and start walking. Maybe it's a mile, two, three miles, who knows? And, and you've already done this once before. This doesn't make sense at all. And now you're, you're carrying the buckets, and what are you doing? You're griping under your breath. No good stinking. He had to show up, carpenter, and look what he's got me doing, filling these things. And by the time you get there, these empty buckets somehow feel like they're full because your arms are tired, aren't they? I mean, use your imagination. Now you get there, you reach in there, and you fill up bucket one, you fill up bucket two, and now you thought those things were heavy, now they get heavy, and you pick them up, and now you carry them all the way back. 
and you get there. You set them down, you pick up bucket one, you pour it in the first cistern. You pick up bucket two, you pour it in the, in the, in the, in the same cistern, and then you look in there and you say these words. That's it? That's it? Because your arms now feel like after just the first trip that they are 10 feet long and they are on fire because it is so exhausting. And now what's being asked of you? To go back to the well again and take this and draw. And finally, finally, after who knows how many trips, cistern number one is finally full. And you've got five more in front of you. And if it's me, I put me in the story, cistern number two, at about 75%, I'm going to look at that and go, that's good enough. And I'm going to move on to cistern number three. By this time, my arms are quivering. And cistern number three, maybe 70%, I look in there and I go, that's good enough. And I'm going to work my way down. If, if I'm feeling really spiritual and I get to number six, I'm here to tell you I'm getting out the tape measure. And the moment I hit 51%, I'm rounding up. And you will hear off my lips, that's good enough. An interesting detail that we will come back to that I didn't read yet in that text. Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Verse eight. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. All right, so, so, so you just went through this entire exercise that does not make sense to you. It costs you a whole lot of time and a whole lot of effort, and you're frustrated. And now you've done that, and you're like, well, I have no idea what this is for. And then Jesus says, okay, I want you to take you know, a cup of that, and I want you to take it over here to the master of the banquet. To which in your mind, you're going, I don't see how drawing some water out of this and giving it to him is going to solve the issue of the fact that he's got egg on his face because they have ran out of wine. This does not make sense to me, Jesus. But we see there in the text those three beautiful words, they did so. Not explain it to me, not justify it to me, not, not give me a, a, a glimpse of what's gonna happen here. I, I think another reason that we are not experiencing the transformative power of Jesus Christ in our life is we look at what it is Jesus is asking us to do in the moment. And I think we're all can be guilty of this. And then we try to project what we think the potential blessings might be for us on the back end to determine, is it worth it for me or not to be obedient in this moment? And if I can't project and see the blessings that might be mine in this moment, I'm not sure. Uh, let me pray about it. And so he, he, he draws it out, and he takes it to the master of the banquet. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Do you know, what our, you know what the text does not tell us? The text does not tell us at what point did that water turn into wine. And I don't know. Can I just give you a, uh, this is what I think, and that should amount to about that much in, 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 against the backdrop of God's word. 
what I think, I don't think it turned into wine until it was in the hands of the master of the banquet. Because how much faith is it to go, oh, it's wine now. Cool, I'll take it over there. How does Jesus work in our own spiritual development? This doesn't make sense. I, I don't see, I don't see, I don't see how this makes sense. Do you know one of the things that's keeping maybe you from experiencing the transformative power of Jesus Christ in your life is your addiction to sight. A lot of Christians are addicted to sight. We are called to walk by faith, not by sight. But if I can't see the benefit to this, if I can't see how this makes sense, then I'm not sure I'm going to do it. And I don't see wine. I see water. And, but, but because you said so, I'm willing to walk in a way that doesn't make sense to me. I'm willing to do what I don't understand. And I'm going to trust you with the results. That's a great picture of transformation. Here you go. And he drinks it. He goes, this, this is incredible wine. I mean, typically people get everyone else, you know, uh, uh, drunk first, and they bring out the, the, uh, the, the cheap stuff. But, but here's the best stuff. And, and, and I want to just kind of pause for a moment because many of us have read this story before, but can we just, just sit with it for a second? Do you realize what's happened? This was water. Now, I didn't take chemistry in high school because I was too busy playing basketball and trying to chase girls, okay? Uh, but I think I know enough about it to realize that, 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 that from a, a structural standpoint, water and wine are two completely different things. Jesus didn't do a hocus pocus and put some food coloring in this. This was water. He fundamentally transformed it. What did Jesus do? Jesus made it something it was not. Noticeably, distinguishably different. He transformed this from water into wine. What is significant about that is this. Every other religion in the world cannot do what only Jesus can do. What is it that only Jesus can do? Transform a human heart. Every other religion in the world, all they can do is to guide you and or bait you into behavior modification, which is a frustrating form of dead religion. Jesus is the only one who says, I can fundamentally make you something that you are not. Brian, this is who you are, but I can make you somebody that you're not. I can transform you. So the people see more of me and more of you. Now, this is different than some other miracles Jesus performed. We read in the Gospels where Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Those were miracles of multiplication. This is a miracle of transformation. Now, I, 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 I bring that to your attention for this reason. We were given that little detail in there that says, so they filled them to the brim. I want you to contrast that picture of them filling it to the brim with this picture that I painted for you of the average person using me going, well, the first one's full, then, you know, that's good enough, that's good enough, that's good enough, that's good enough. Oh, that's 51%, that's good enough. And here's the question. How much wine 
would we have gotten if I was the servant in the story? Not as much as there could have been. Because the, because the amount of wine that had been transformed from water was proportionate to the amount of water that was brought to Jesus. In other words, Jesus only transformed that which was brought to him. If it's 75%, then you got 75% worth of wine. If it's 51%, then you got 51% worth of wine. In, in the economy of Christ's transformative power at work in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, he only transforms that which is brought to him. And, and so in, in story, you know, there's, 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 there's some imagery here that well, I think in a sense, represents you. And, and what we are being invited to do as a follower of Jesus Christ is to continue to do the hard work. Because it's hard work of going back to the well again and again and again and drawing in there and filling up these cisterns and saying, here's who I am. Here's the good, here's the bad, here's the ugly. But here I am, Jesus, all of me. So that he could take who I am and make me who I am not so that I can be transformed to be like Jesus Christ. It means that I, I go to the well again and again and again. I draw up stuff that's, that's, that I, I might not even know is even there. That's why biblical community is so important. Listen, I understand that right now, because of things that are happening you know, with a pandemic around the world, that it may not be wise for people to gather together in certain ways. But I tell you what, I am deathly afraid for the lukewarm Christian who goes, well, this, this, this Netflix version of Christianity is kind of cool. I can lay in bed. I can watch the service, stop it when I stop, when I stop it, start it when I want to start it, and, and somehow think that they're going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ by treating the proclamation of his word as no different than an episode of The Office. We were made to grow and flourish and become more like Jesus through biblical community. Because there are, in the well of Brian Johnson, there, there are some places in there I don't even know about and I don't want to go, but I need trusted brothers and sisters in community who walk with me to be able to say, Brian, let's, let's go a little deeper. I see a little something in there. Let's draw this up. Let's draw this out. Now let's talk about this. Can I walk with you? Can I pray with you? Can I hold you accountable and support you? It's time spent in the word. It's time spent in prayer. Time spent in community where I go to the well of me and I bring it up and I bring it to Jesus. Why? Because he can't transform it if I don't bring it to him. Why don't we see more transformation in our churches of people becoming more like Jesus? Because somewhere along the line, about cistern number two or three, they, from their soul, echoed this awful thing, that's good enough. 
I'm gonna, Jesus, I'll give you, you know, one, two, or three sisters, and, 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 and he will transform it. But it's nowhere near what it could be. It's nowhere near what it should be. And it's, apparently, it is not enough for an unbelieving world to see a sharp, stark contrast between people who are walking in darkness and those who profess to be walking in the light. Let's go to verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. If there is a temptation for us to look at this text and go, wow, if, if I'll just do the hard work, I'll become more like Jesus, and then uh, my life's going to be somehow better. Wow, that's great. Look what's in it for me. And if our perspective is, look what's in it for me, look what I get out of it, then that lens is the very lens that trips us up. Because we look at things when God says, I want you to do this or I want you to do that, and we go, I I don't see what's in it for me. I don't see the blessing in this. I don't see the good in this. And so I'm going to say, no, after all, who does it hurt? Nobody but me. And so if I'm the center of the story, it becomes very easy for me to dismiss opportunities for me to do the hard work it takes so that all of Jesus that's been put in me comes out of me. Now, I want you to hear very clearly, I am not in any way advocating or supporting a false gospel that says somehow that you can earn this. You can't. But I also want to drive a stake through the heart of any notion of spiritual formation and sanctification into the likeness of Jesus Christ that does not require effort out of me. To surrender myself time and time again takes effort. We're called to work out our salvation, not work for it, work out our salvation. That means be willing to go to the well again and again and again to draw up and draw out that which is there and bring it before him so that he can transform it. What what, what a frightening picture that somehow we could get to the end of our life and when we see Jesus face to face, I'm telling you, there's gonna be an embrace for you like you can't even imagine and he will hold you close and he will welcome you in. But I believe there will be an opportunity for us to see That at the end of the day, we are his, we are his beloved, we've been invited in. But we will see, loved ones, that we stopped at cistern two or three because we said that's good enough. And we'll see what we missed out on. And I think every single one of us in that moment will have wished that we did not buy into this that's good enough version of Christianity where I get the really bad stuff out. I, I engage in church activities. I do you know, Christian things and I, 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 I go hip deep into a Christian culture. 
But by and large, after a few years of my life, I just, I'm, I, that's who I am. That's just who I am. It's not about us. What is it about? We're given the picture there in verse 11. He thus revealed his glory. In other words, it's not about me and my glory. It's about his. Now, there are a lot of different depictions in Scripture that help us understand more about what glory means. And so I just want to focus on just, just one. I'm not saying this is the, the totality of it, but one lane in this entire you know, super highway of understanding the glory of God, which how do you even begin to do that is beyond me. But there are different words that are used to, um, to describe or translate this. And one of them in Hebrew is the word weight, like, like, weight, like lifting weights. Weight is one. If you are around someone who has great prominence and significance. It could be someone um, who is high up in government. It could be someone who is a uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, professional athlete, a musician who's just at a, you know, internationally known. If you are around somebody like that, here's what happens to all of us. When we are in their presence, we feel their presence don't we? We feel, we feel something. We, what, what is it we're feeling? We're feeling the weight of who they are. We are feeling, we are, we are, we are experiencing uh, the glory that emanates from, the, from, a, from, a, from a human being. The weight of that. I'm always um, in awe of Moses and what what prompted him, the audacity to, to tell God, show me yourself. And God's like, bro, you can't handle that. And I don't know if God actually said bro, but that's just my translation. I want to see you. I want to see you. The Bible says no one has seen God and lived. Do you know that you, you weren't built to handle God? Do you understand that? So what did God do? God in his mercy said, come with me. I need to tuck you in a rock. I need, I need to brace you on all sides. And the Bible says that, that, that the backside, the swoosh uh, of the glory, just, just, a, just, a, just a, an element of the glory of the backside of God passed by Moses. And Moses had to be braced to handle that. It says that he revealed his glory. In other words, everybody in the room, so to speak, felt the weight of who he is and what he just did. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus performing all these many miracles. And, and the people who were there, they felt the weight of that. Go, oh, oh. The Bible makes it very clear that in bodily form, Jesus Christ is not walking the earth as he did 2,000 years ago. But we use this language flippantly, I think. We are called the body of Christ. Now follow with me here. When you and I continue to go back to the well again and again and again and again and bring all of me 
the good, the bad, the ugly, the undiscovered, the unknown, when we bring it to him, there he is able to do a transformative work in us so that we become fundamentally what we were not. So when an unbelieving world looks at you, looks at you and you and me, and they see that we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then God gets glory. Weight is now added to the claims of Christ. See, Jesus says, you know, uh, uh, I can make you whole again. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I can, I can raise you from the dead. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to me. I'm the only door, but I'm inviting everyone in. Come and, and, and be with me. And he makes these audacious claims throughout the entire Gospels. But when you and I are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the transformative power of Christ in you, making you what you were not, gives glory to him. It gives weight to the argument, to the claims of Christ. Simply put, when Jesus says, I can take those people who are dead and bring them back to life, when there are people walking around who decide, you know what, I'm not going to live a two or three cistern life. I'm going to be a six cistern Christian, all of me for all of you, so that all of me gives all of you all of the glory that you deserve. Then they, what happens in that, loved ones, is a watching world sees us and now God is getting glory because there is now weight to the claims of Christ because there is no refuting the transformative power of Jesus Christ at work in a person. You can debate apologetics. You can debate science. You can debate everything. But you cannot debate a changed life. And we are never going to get to the place where we are giving weight to the claims of Christ if we opt for a version of Christianity that is known for that's good enough. It inspires no one. And so I would just ask you today, whether you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, as the Spirit of God contends in you, even in this very moment, because he won't leave you alone, will he? You're, some, some of you are like, will you, Brian, will you, will you just be done? Will you, can we hurry up now? That, that's the Spirit of God going, we got, let's talk, let's talk. Have you looked to your left and your right and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm better than them and I'm not as bad as them, so I'm okay. And is the Spirit of God revealing to you in his mercy? That, you're, that, you, that you've been stuck as a two-cistern Christian for the last 20 years. And there's so much more. But you've got to be willing to die to yourself and follow him and bring all of you to all of him. There is nothing that you can disclose that he doesn't already know and hasn't already purchased the forgiveness of. There's nothing you can bring to him that he would look at and say, I am ashamed of you. 
because of what Christ did on our behalf. He took our unrighteousness so that we could have his righteousness. And so don't let fear of rejection or shame keep you from bringing all of that to him. Maybe you go, well, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I should be farther along than I am. Maybe so. But let's not let this, I should have, I should have, I should have, keep me from being what I could be. And so what I would like to do is I'd like to just pray for you and, and, and pray for this church because you have been given a unique opportunity to be salt, light, and leaven in this community. Missionaries deployed, okay? The church gathered, and then what? The church scattered to show a watching world the transformative power of Jesus Christ. But it begins by taking stock and saying, here's where I really am. And so I would just invite you as I pray, the Spirit of God is stirring it in you. Don't resist the gift of becoming aware of my need to repent. Father, I come to you now on behalf of this church, on behalf of myself, on behalf of our nation, for those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray, oh God, that by your grace, through your mercy, you will give us eyes to see to see what's there, what's really there. Lift this deceiving gaze that has caused so many of the followers of Jesus Christ to coast for decades. Lift it, Jesus. Show us that what you purchased for us with your blood that you shed is more than just a comfortable version of Christianity where we engage in a cultural expression one day a week, learn some content, and basically live life how we want. We have been purchased at a high price. And so, Jesus, we realize that our ability to say thank you to you for what you have done is to not settle for that one or two or three cisterns, but to keep coming back to the well again and again and again and say, show me, Jesus, reveal to me, where are there areas in my life undiscovered, untouched, that we would have the incredible opportunity to walk with you in great fellowship. So when the day comes and we draw our last breath on this earth and we step into eternity and we see you and we have that embrace with you that, that, we, could, that we could join together in giving you even greater glory than we could on earth as we look at a life well lived where we brought all of us to all of you so that all of you can be declared in all the world around us. That is our heart's cry. 
but it begins by us taking stock of where we are today. So Spirit of God, stir us. Bring us, bring us to the altar where we come to you. We repent and we receive fresh grace again. We love you, Jesus. And it is our heart's desire that our life would magnify you and point to the transforming power that has been put inside each and every blood-bought son and daughter of the living God. We give you glory today in the name that is above every name. It is the only name that can transform the human heart. And we boldly and we proudly proclaim that name and we pray in that name in Jesus' name. Amen.